0: That was pretty crazy. But both Andrew.
1: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. That just struck me funny. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to laugh out loud. (laughs) not. James. We made it to five episodes, (laughs) which feels pretty big to me. Yep. I wasn't sure when we started, if we'd last this long. We've been trying to do this now for, I don't know, over a couple of years, I guess. Mm -hmm. But now that we got into it, the time went by a lot more quickly than I expected. And here we are at episode five. Yep. It's rather surprising. I wasn't sure
0: either even the last couple episodes I was like well should we still be doing this but it's been encouraging to see a number of different people listening to the podcast I've been seeing the download numbers going up I've been getting some some comments from friends and family that have been listening to the podcast and enjoying it and encouraging us and giving us ideas so it seems like it's
1: worth worth continuing with yeah and speaking of comments from people we have some feedback from some of the earlier episodes. Am am I allowed to talk about feedback, James? Sure, go ahead. One of the critiques that we got was that maybe we sound a bit too stiff mm-hmm. or too formal in our podcasting. As my wife lovingly put it last evening, she said, you still sound stilted, but you'll probably get better once you're comfortable, she said. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about it, and when I was talking with my wife, and I understand why people could feel that way about the podcast, but like I've told a few people who've talked to me about it and I told my wife this, that's really how a conversation between James and Sean sounds. So what are we gonna do, James? We can't we can't be ourselves.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure. I guess we just need to be fake
1: and and give the people what they want. <laughs> well, Hopefully we'll have a little bit of help in this podcast episode. We have a guest and we, we needed a new dynamic. So we're listening to the feedback from our listeners, bringing on a new personality. Maybe you all like him better. Maybe we need to do some sort of poll and, and figure out if we need to fire either James or me and keep the new guy. Our guest is Andrew Kreider. Andrew, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Sure, thanks for having me. Is there anything you can tell the people about who you are or what you do? Sure. Uh, I'm a friend of
2: both Sean and James. Met Sean and James through uh, work at Christian Light, which is where I still work. Yeah, over the years we've gotten I've gotten to be friends with them. And so I guess uh, they needed some guinea pig to drag in <laughs> as a... Uh, First guest on their podcast.
1: James, is there anything that you can add? Anything you want to tell the people about Andrew?
0: Yeah, I've worked with him for the last number of years and I've really enjoyed getting to know him. He thinks differently than me in some ways, so it's kind of fun to bounce ideas off of him and go to his office and talk about some of the deeper things of life, which Sean and I have done a little bit of that on the podcast so far.
1: So we thought it'd be fun to invite him on so we can have a discussion. Well I've known Andrew for a few years now but I first came to know him under a different name. When I first saw him I was told that his name was Mr. Perfect. Andrew had come in a group with uh, his married siblings and his parents and sang as a family at our church and I was told that there was a man named Mr. Perfect that was part of the singing group and I found this unbelievable that there was a guy that was his name was Mr. Perfect so I wanted to know who Mr. Perfect was and he was described to me as having red hair and I didn't think any of the guys really had red hair but Andrew was the only guy in the group that came close to having red hair so I figured that that must be Mr. Perfect but a couple years later I finally met Andrew and discovered that he wasn't Mr. Perfect at all. Andrew, now that I told the people that you are part of a singing group, do you have something that you want to sing on the podcast before we move on, or are you ready to move into the podcast? No, I'll take a pass on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, James, what are we talking about this time?
0: Today we're talking about what it's like to live in a foreign country for a long period of time. That's not something that I've done. i visited a foreign country or two. I visited Canada once, Time That was... That was pretty crazy. But both Andrew. I'm sorry. I'm
1: sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. That just struck me funny. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to laugh out loud or (laughs) not.
0: Uh, no, it actually wasn't that crazy. It was, it was quite tame. <laughs> Sounds more accurate. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. So I have visited some foreign countries, Canada being one of them, Belize being the other one. But I've never spent a long amount of time in a foreign country to really know the culture and try to connect with the native people. And I've never been a missionary. But both Andrew and Sean, Sean is currently in Peru serving for... Uh, at least five years I believe and Andrew was a missionary in Guatemala for about two and a half years back in the the mid uh, 2000s and I thought that the audience might like to hear us discuss what it's like to to be a missionary in a foreign
1: country. So Andrew you went back in what year was it when you and your wife moved to Guatemala? We moved to Guatemala in 2007 I think it was June. How, how did you all come to that decision? What was it that inspired you to go or were you called or tell us a little bit about what brought you to that point? (laughs) What does it, what does it mean to be called to go to a foreign country? It's like when someone picks up the phone and calls you and says, please come to a foreign country.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well,
1: yeah, I was thinking about that question in the last few days.
2: and thinking back to what led us up to that decision. Well, for one thing, it was something I always wanted to do and Loretta and I actually talked about it um, when we were dating. We both wanted to go to a foreign country at some point. Um, Loretta actually had spent a little time in Guatemala. She had some friends from down there, um, had actually gone to Bible school once if not twice. Um, She knew a smattering of Spanish more than I did. <clears throat> Somewhere along the way, we had expressed some interest with one of the members of the MAM board, Mennonite Air Missions. And I forget all the details, but it came out one day, I think through a conversation that my dad had with, with a board member, that they uh, they knew of our interest, but um, were sort of waiting for us to contact them at whatever point we felt like we were ready to do that. that was news to me, you know, it kind of set me back a little bit. And of course, then, you know, if we wanted to go under MAM, which I thought um, seemed like it would be a fit, then that threw the decision back into our laps about the timing. Mm -hmm. And so we talked about it and prayed about it and uh, eventually contacted them and went through the process and ended up in
0: Guatemala. Sean, so you also had to make a decision to to move to Peru. And this wasn't just for two years. Uh, if I understand you signed up for, is it what a minimum of five years?
1: Yeah, something like that. We don't have an official contract or anything that says that we have to stay here for five years, but that's mm-hmm. maybe our minimum commitment. We thought if we were going to move that far away and uh, transplant our family have to learn the language there's a lot of investment that goes into it that it really wouldn't be worthwhile if we spent less time than that but we're only let's see we're not quite at two years yet that we're here so mm-hmm. we'll have to see if we want we'll to see what the future is like Sean I'm curious
2: how you how you arrived at the decision to move to Peru for Loretta and I I wouldn't say And maybe this flows out of my my view of or my understanding of God's will and how we know what God wants us to do. But I would not say that we felt called, in air quotes, but we saw the need and we wanted to to be part of meeting the need. And we felt like we could. And so we did. And some people, I think, would feel like that's not enough of a reason to go be a missionary. Mm -hmm. Maybe you would differ with me on that or maybe you would agree with me. I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are.
1: I'm afraid that I took a fairly pragmatic approach to it. We've received a little bit of flack for that, maybe. I'm not sure. There is this idea, at least in our experience, that is pretty common, that people think that one must be called, and I'm not sure what all that means, but have some sort of of uh, special calling from the Lord to, to, to do a thing like uh, foreign mission work. For my wife and me, both of us, when we were young, felt that mission work in a foreign country was something we wanted to do sometime simply because for us, it seemed like it fit with the calling to take the gospel to other peoples. And there are lots of Christians in the States. And so we maybe aren't as needed in that way there. So we always wanted to go somewhere. When we married, we... Talked about values for our children. We wanted our children to learn to love and serve other people and to be okay with interacting with, I don't know, having relationships with people who didn't look just like them or think just like them or have the same backgrounds as them. And so moving to another country to serve the Lord felt like it would tick some of those boxes. So we waited Quite a number of years about a dozen years into our marriage before we made a move to go to another country We waited until we found an opportunity that felt like it fit with Where we were in our our life and where we wanted to go and when the opportunity came up for Peru We decided to jump for it. So I don't don't, yeah, neither of us really felt a a Calling we didn't get a thunderclap. We didn't receive signs from the lord it was just something that we felt we wanted to do and it fit within it fit within who god wanted us to be as believers and so we just did it
0: yeah i find it somewhat interesting that we oftentimes feel like you need to have a calling to be a missionary but then if people feel like they have a calling to be a minister then we kind of look at them a little bit askance <laughs> 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 so i don't know what there is to that there there are those things that There's these expectations that you have to be called. But I find it interesting that you said that you felt it was kind of your duty. That definitely sounds doesn't sound very emotional. Well, there's
2: another another piece to it, um, this whole thing about calling and being a missionary. If we actually believe that we're called, and maybe we'll get to this later, but if we're called to be a missionary wherever we are, does there need to be a special calling to go to Guatemala or to Peru or Jordan or China or wherever. Like, I don't see that as... I, I'd be willing to hear people with a different opinion on this, but to me it doesn't seem that there needs to be a special calling so much as an, a willingness just to do God's work wherever wherever we can. And if there's an opportunity to do it somewhere, let's let's go do it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Andrew, I, I feel a lot the same way. And in fact, I don't know, I have this... I have this strange, um, it's not a repulsion that's too strong of a word, but I, I kind of don't like the word missionary because there's this idea that missionaries, people who go to, to a country that is not the United States, for example, to serve the Lord are somehow different on a different level, have a different calling and so on. My wife and I, we really didn't feel that way. We felt that God wanted us to love and serve people and share his gospel with them. And we worked to do that all the years up to when we decided, before we came to Peru, we were trying to be busy in our community with our neighbors, um, with our church, you know, whether it was like a children's Bible club or inviting neighbors in to to discuss, discuss the Bible, uh, visiting people, singing for people, whatever. And so we didn't really feel like our lives were going to change a tremendous amount in what we were going to be doing. It was more about location, yeah, changing our location, changing, of course, our language, and dealing with the culture. But going somewhere, for us, the biggest change was going somewhere where there were very few other believers or very few other people who thought the same way we did. And so we were going going into a darker place, maybe, or a place where there were fewer lights, mm. not really changing who we were or what we were doing.
2: Yeah, and if you think if you think that being a missionary makes you some sort of a higher um, sort of person, you'll find out pretty quickly that's not the case. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I wish it
2: were.
0: <laughs> yeah, it would be really nice, wouldn't it? So y'all didn't find that when you went, you felt the calling, and then you went to the mission field and became a missionary, and all of a sudden, you just became this super-powered spiritual warrior. I'm afraid not.
2: Well, it's a, it's almost a cliche, but but uh, if you're not doing the Lord's work where you're at, and you move somewhere else, um, what are the chances that you'll be any different? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The location isn't what determines that. It's it's uh, decisions that we make. Yeah. How yeah. just how we live. Yeah.
0: I'm curious how how your ideas of how it would be to be a missionary how is that different from the reality once you actually got there and kind of got in the trenches and started doing the work how is that different
2: well i don't know if i can answer that question very well because well for one thing it's been what is it it's been about 14 years uh, since we went to guatemala and of course you guys know how my memory is so what memory (laughs) right exactly so as far as what my ideas were, I I don't know if I could say exactly what they were. I mean, going to another country and living and adapting to the culture, it's just it's just life. It's real life and it's boring and hard. I mean, it's not always boring, obviously. There's nothing really that glamorous about it to be really honest. If people if a young person wants to go, let's say in a term of VS to another country, if they're prepared for that, they will fare a lot better than if they go with with grand ideas about uh, what a glamorous time they'll have because it's not about glamour it's about
1: service i think maybe your question james comes from (laughs) i'm not sure what the word is but the word that comes to mind is the marketing (laughs) that goes into getting volunteers to mission fields particularly yeah if If, if you want a family or some young people to come to a country in latin america for example and they have a fulfilling life and are busy in the states you have to have some sort of hook and i think that there are there are stories and there are testimonies and there are i'm not sure videos that are designed to compel people or move them in some way and a lot of that goes back to what Andrew was saying it it can appear glamorous as far as what we were expecting like I mentioned before I think I had a fairly pragmatic view of it I'd read lots of missionary stories books I talked with people who'd been missionaries back in the day and so on I figured that it was just going to be life and maybe just a little bit harder because we were learning a new culture. We were learning a new language and didn't have all the creature comforts of home. So that part of it, I think met our realities. We, we were expecting it to be just life here. And that part of it did meet our expectations, but we had some other ideas in mind about what mission life might become or be for us because our plan was we wanted to connect with people who had had known people who had been here before there had been a family that had lived in this community some years back um, maybe close to a decade back now and they had some contacts here that had been attending church and wanted to learn about the lord So we had in our mind that we were coming to help start a church to support these people who either were believers or wanted to become believers. But we are now coming up on two years and we do not have a church. We are (laughs) very much alone. And another expectation we had was that we would be working with other families that had experience in foreign mission settings, Latin American settings and that we would be able to learn from them, and they would kind of be our mentors. That has not worked out. We are the only family here from the States, and there are no other believers, no local believers, and no North American believers, and so that didn't meet our expectations. Probably the third thing was we wanted to learn the language, wanted to become fluent in it rapidly, I guess, but with this whole global pandemic situation we've been closed off from even our local friends our community here that has really cut into our ability to learn the language because we haven't been as able to talk with people or as frequently frequently maybe so those three expectations i thought about were not realized but as far as what we thought mission life would be yeah more or less i think I wanted to put a disclaimer
2: in here as well so i said that loretta and i went to guatemala in 2007 and i was i was the grand old age of 21. so james you you, y'all got me on the podcast here to talk about what it's like to live in a foreign country and you can learn some things but i feel like like i was young and i would say fairly immature although i wouldn't have said so at the time of course just had a lot to learn about life. So when I look back at my experience as a missionary, in quotes, a lot of what I think about are things that I could have done better. Like I have, yeah, I don't feel like that that experience that I went down there and just did an amazing job of being a missionary and of uh, relating to people, fitting in with the culture. Yeah, in some ways, uh, but other ways not so much. So I just want to make it clear that I'm not here as an authority or this person this wise person with years of experience, Mm -hmm. because in reality, I was young and actually only spent a couple of years, so uh, lest you or the listeners have the wrong impression, I just wanted to straighten that out.
0: Yeah, Well, yeah, that might be the case, but you still probably have more experience than the majority of people listening, definitely more than me. This is true, but you know how to fix that, James. (laughs) Yes, that is true. That is true. (laughs) Uh yeah, we've talked a little bit about about some of the disconnect between expectations of mission life and the realities. Yeah, it's life, maybe a bit harder and sometimes as boring as real life, definitely not glamorous. I'm curious what are some of the some of the hardest things or some of the hardest parts of living in a in a foreign country and dealing with a different culture. I don't know if you all have some stories you could share. Yeah, things that were difficult, fitting into another
2: culture is, is always difficult. Partly, it's because when you're brand new, coming into a different culture, you don't even know the things that you're doing wrong unless someone tells you, and people aren't always willing to tell you that. Mm-hmm. You could do something that would offend somebody, but since you're the uh, the American, and depending on how that person looks at Americans, you know they'll just shut up and, and not, not say anything. And so you lost you lost a learning opportunity uh, when people do that. I'm trying to think of any stories that I would have about trying to fit in. I got to remember fairly shortly after we got to Guatemala, we filled in for uh, for house parents at one of the locations, one of the towns. So there was a number of young people there, both American and local. So you can imagine me, I'm 21, Loretta's a little bit older than I am. We have Ah, uh, one child who's about six months old, I don't know the first thing about being a house parent, right? <laughs> I don't even know how to be a parent yet. right. That was actually a very difficult experience for me because I was this new American guy coming into a different culture and didn't didn't know how to fit in very well and offended some people. Some people thought I was arrogant, some people thought I was lazy. Um, I remember an instance where I had built a gate. And I don't remember the type of wood it was. It was very, very heavy, very dense wood. You know, me being me, I had to get it from where where I had it, the assembled gate, across a sizable uh, field to install it. So I threw it in the uh, in the back of a mission van and drove across the pasture and installed it. Didn't think twice about it. Well, I found out later that some of the young people, you know, that that to them. I I was proving myself to be a lazy bum. Like, why in the world would you just pick up the gate and walk across the field with it? Why do you need to put that in a vehicle to take it across? So to me, I was just working smart. It was faster and easier, so I did it that way. Well, to the locals, that looked like I just didn't want to work. And I didn't even know it at the time. And of course, when I found out later, I struggled to not be offended about it. and so there's things like that where you can run into just the, the different perspectives. The way people look at things can be very different. Sometimes it's a minefield that you don't even know you're walking through.
1: You can't know what you don't know. We found that very true in our situation. A couple months, two months after we came to Peru, we had a baby boy. We were used to, for the last several of our children, having our babies at home that was our normal expectation. I had done a little bit of research into it and had thought that it was okay to do here. And so we had the home birth, everything went fine and then we needed to go apply for paperwork. I should have done some more research about how to get the paperwork done before the, the birth happened. But like I said, it was only two months after we were here and, um, there was a lot of activity in those two months getting settled in, and, and I let that sort of thing get away from me. But we realized then that it's actually illegal to have a home birth in the country of Peru, and we did not have our residency papers for Peru at that point. We hadn't been here long enough. Yeah, we came up against some very difficult situations trying to get a birth certificate for him and trying to get him nationalized and, and so on. We went to how many doctors, and no one wanted to hear us. No one wanted to touch the case. They thought we might be hiding from the U.S. government because we'd had this baby in Peru. and They were worried about child trafficking, and it was really difficult because we knew only a little bit of Spanish, and we couldn't very well explain our situation, and they were very afraid that our child could have died at home because it's not something that happens here to have home births. And I remember in the one talking with the one doctor, which we had gone to her multiple times because she's in, she kind of oversees this district where we live. So she was like, okay, she's going to work with us. She's going to try to help us get, get the paperwork. We had shown some evidence from doctor visits and so on that, yeah, this was our pregnancy. This was our baby, so on. And so she started to fill out the paperwork and she asked what my name was, and I said, Sean David Schmidt. And then she asked my wife's name, and she said her name, last name Schmidt. And the doctor looked up and said, but what, what's your what's your wife's complete last name? And I said, just Schmidt. This <laughs> created a big problem for this doctor because she said, you, you must be brother and sister. You must be siblings. And we could not figure out why why that would be, why she thought that and we pulled out our driver's license we pulled out our passports and it's just further confirming in her mind that we were siblings we the <laughs> the lady asked me are you are you her marido <laughs> and i did not know what that word was i had no idea what marido was i'd never heard it before but i knew that i was my wife's esposo in spanish means husband <laughs> and so i said no no i'm not her marido <laughs> And so she said, well, what are you? Are you her hermano? Are you her brother? I said, no, I'm not her brother. I'm her esposo. (laughs) And the woman just looked at me like I was an idiot because marido is another word for husband. So she was like, are you, are you her marido then she was trying to confirm that yes, I was married. I was like, no, I'm not her marido. I'm her esposo. (laughs) And she was like, what, what are you saying? And so I said, I said, (laughs) (laughs) oh my. I said, estamos cansados, (laughs) Uh, which in Spanish means we are tired. What I was trying to say was estamos casados, which means we are married. (laughs) And so this lady was just completely convinced that I was both. A lunatic and I had married my sister and moved to a foreign country to have this baby illicitly. That was probably our most difficult experience and it was almost right off the bat and showed just the difference in culture. Everyone in Peru and in a lot of Latin American countries have two names. They have the last name of their mother and the last name of their father and then when they get married the couple keeps both of their two last names and if they have a child then that child takes the two last names of the paternal grandparents. And so everyone has two last names and no names are lost and no names are combined and and it's two to to North Americans. It probably seem rather confusing, but it's just their way of doing things. And here we had the same exact name. So that showed that we were, (laughs) we were siblings and this was a big, big problem. Yeah.
0: That does sound like a little bit of a problem. Definitely shows how difference in culture. I mean, just something as simple as whether the wife takes the last name of the husband, which we just take for granted, can be the source of some pretty major misunderstandings. Exactly. I do know that there are some cultural differences between different countries that are kind of the terms hot countries and cold countries, or hot cultures, cold cultures. I don't know
1: if you're familiar with that. Well, I thought I could probably give an example of that just from the United States itself. The U.S. is so big that there are subcultures within the larger overall American culture. That idea of warm culture and cold culture is evident in the U.S. and in various different pockets. In, in my growing up, it was it was very clear that there were two different cultures in our family. My dad was born and raised in Michigan, and my mom was born and raised in Tennessee, so one of them was from the north, the other was from the south. The south has a very much of a warm culture feel to it. The north has a cold culture, and it doesn't have to do necessarily with the climate, like whether they get lots of snow or not, but it's the way that they relate to relationships or the way that they deal with relationships. An example of that is in Tennessee, if you go into a gas station or you go into a restaurant or whatever, the, the cashier will usually call you something like honey or sweetheart. (laughs) How are you doing sweetheart? How can I help you? Can I take your order honey? And that sort of thing in the north in Michigan, they're not going to do that. It'll be hello, sir. How can I help you? If they even bother to acknowledge that you walked into the gas station. In Tennessee, in the warm culture, people wave. When you pass a vehicle on the road, you wave. When you pass someone that's standing out in their yard and you're driving past, you wave. I remember different times where our family from Michigan would come to visit and we would be driving down the road and someone would pass us and we would all wave and they would wave back. And my relative would say, Do you know them? We're like, no, we don't know them. Well, why did you wave? Like, that's creepy. Why would you wave at them? <laughs> well, it's just a friendly thing to do. We're in Tennessee, but in Michigan, they would more keep their head down and, and just stick to themselves. Just as a clarifier, I love my family in Michigan and they're some of the dearest people in the world to me, but they're very different from the culture that's in Tennessee. Andrew, how did you find it comparing Latin American culture to North American culture?
2: Well, Guatemala and Peru both actually would be would would have a warm culture. I was going to say uh, you were talking about the last name situation. I wonder if is that a reflection, or is that because of the warm culture and the importance that Latin Americans would tend to put on relationships, particularly uh, relationships with extended family. They're more of a they have more of a group identity instead of a. Uh, instead of being so individualistic like Americans. I never really thought about that before. I wondered what you thought. Is that true?
1: It is true. My friend here, Rafael, who helped me, he was, he was a major help in finally getting our, our son Walter's uh, paperwork. He helped us uh, just talk with various people and get the situation figured out. I first had to explain the situation to him very painfully in my extremely limited Spanish and using uh, translators and so on. And he could not figure out why would you want to drop your name? Mm -hmm. And particularly why would the wife want to drop both of her names? Mm -hmm. Because that's like cutting off your family. Like why would, why would your wife not want to be associated with her mom's family and with her dad's family? And isn't that a terrible insult that you would just cut them off that way. Right. And I had never thought about that when my wife dropped her name that she was insulting either of of her families. It's just the way that it's done. But to them, you're you're exactly right. When there's a married couple, you have all four names, the wife's two families and the husband's two families. And that is a huge honor to be part of that that extremely large group and they feel very close to all of them anyone that has mm-hmm. those that shares those last names and
2: so even a simple thing like the way that names work like naming protocols in a warm culture are different than they are in a cold cold culture because of the different emphasis mm-hmm. people versus I don't know I'm not I'm not sure what I was gonna say people versus um, tasks maybe or efficiency I'm not sure how I would
0: describe a cold culture.
1: Efficiency is a good way to put it, I think. Relationship versus efficiency. Yeah. Well,
0: before we go any further, it might be good to clarify what we mean by warm and cold cultures. I'm sure there's probably some of the people listening that are maybe getting a little bit confused what where these terms are coming from and what they mean. Sean, I think you've you've done you've obviously lived in a in a warm culture for the last little while. And I think you've done some reading about culture. I don't know if you could Educate audience on what these terms mean and how they differ.
1: I've read a a number of of books on it. The idea is just like Andrew said, relationship versus efficiency or um, relationship versus tasks. So a, a warm culture is relationship focused. Tennessee would definitely be a warm culture in that way warm cultures like latin american cultures would put a a heavy emphasis on taking time to just stop and talk so driving through tennessee or driving through peru and andrew can speak to other guatemala is this way you're going to find people just sitting on the porch in the middle of the day when it's a work day just sitting on the porch with each other talking and in a cold culture the emphasis is on efficiency and tasks, getting stuff done. And so when you go to a cold culture, particularly like the Northern section of the United States, which is known for its industry, you're not gonna see people just shoot in the breeze when it's a work day. They are the ones that are gonna be killing themselves with 50 hour weeks <laughs> to 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 live the rat race that, that we might be familiar with. Not because they don't love people, necessarily, but it's just a different focus that they have. They're focused on, on getting things done. Yeah, like you
2: mentioned, Sean, about about talking, taking time to talk. Obviously, I would come from a more of a, a cold culture environment, although Virginia is kind of on the edge of the South. Like, for example, I'm the sort of person who's more like, let's get down to business here. If we have a meeting or if I'm talking with somebody, like, let's get straight to the point. Whereas a Latin American um, could spend quite a long time beating around the bush or to them, it's not beating around the bush. They're they're just uh, having a relationship, having a good time. To me, it would be beating around the bush. Or, So communication is a big one. I know that you struggled a lot with it in Peru. Indirect communication versus direct communication. Mm-hmm. So I tend to be a frank sort of person and just say things, and it gets me into trouble when I'm trying to learn. <laughs> but uh, a person from a, a warm culture or at least a Latin American culture, it can be very, very difficult to get a straight answer out of somebody, in, or maybe even impossible. One thing that can help is, uh, in a conversation, not to ask questions that require a specific yes or no answer.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Because a Latin American can, because of the culture, they can, it can put them on the spot. Like, they don't want to tell you no. Maybe the answer to the question is no, but they would never tell you that because you might be offended. They want to preserve mm-hmm. the relationship that they have with you. And so they will hem and haw around and uh, not, they may even say yes when the answer is no. And you being the, the cold culture, the American, you know, you, you believe them only to become frustrated after a while when it comes out that no, they had no intention of of doing whatever they said they were going to do or the answer that they gave to you, it might seem a lie, whereas to them,
0: they were uh, being non-offensive. So it's very, very different uh, way of looking at it. Yeah, that is definitely quite strange from what we're used to. I mean, we are told when we're little that, I mean, you do not lie, not even white lies, but yet these people are, in a sense, lying to preserve the relationship.
1: Yeah, it's very much that way here in Peru. They would much rather lie to you than than to tell you that they can't help you because if they have to decide to value the relationship over valuing their own reputation they will always put the relationship first Hmm. so it it can be very well i think there is a, a stereotype that that north americans have about latin americans that they just don't keep their word and i think that's a bit too black and white it doesn't it doesn't give place for the nuance or complexity that is their value on relationships Mm -hmm. not to excuse telling falsehoods because you know god calls us to to be honest at all times but if you understand that they are having to decide like andrew said when you put them on the spot do i respect this person and value the relationship and make them feel like a friend or do I tell them no, which is going to disappoint them? And that is going to be a negative in our relationship. Mm-hmm. And they will always put the relationship first, even if even if it does negative damage later down the road for their reputation, for example.
0: Yeah, I have a cousin who is serving some time in Jordan. They're working for Cam, her and her husband. And she's been getting to know some of the, the neighbor ladies. And she was walking down the street one day, and one of the neighbor ladies was going by with this big plate of food. And so she's friendly and says, oh, hi, you're carrying this big plate of food. Where are you taking it? And the lady says, oh, we're taking it to your house. I'm going to give you this food. (laughs) And so the lady takes the food to my cousin's house, drops it off. Then a little bit later, she finally realizes, you know what, this lady did not want to give me this food at all. (laughs) She She was not planning to... Yeah, she was not giving this food to me. That is not the plan. The fact that she was accosted by my cousin... You know, she was just trying to be friendly, but the way that the lady interpreted it was she did not want to disappoint mm-hmm. her and so the best thing she could do is to give away her food. Yeah, she felt really bad about that. Um it was completely unintentional. She wasn't wasn't trying to do that, but, but when I heard that, to me it was definitely a, a very much a story of warm versus cold culture.
2: Yeah, and food circumstances or situations around food can be a big deal like for example i would say that we here in the states like when, when i visit someone's house and they serve me food i would never well depending depending who it was if i went to james's house and he served me food that wasn't good i might tell him <laughs> but generally generally you know it's not considered polite but in other cultures like you wouldn't even want to approach even come close to to intimating that this food is not good, or that I don't like it, or or whatever. Uh, it's very important to them. I remember, here's an interesting story, not too long after we had gotten to Guatemala, we made a trip to visit another missionary family in the northern part of Guatemala. And while we were there, we made a trek out to visit, I don't remember, don't even remember why, but we visited a, a local family way out up in the jungle. And so we rode on the back of a truck out through the out through the uh, land, got stuck at a spot or two, eventually got there. And and one of the reasons these folks lived way back in the boondocks was they raised bees, and wherever their location was, was great for the bees, and they sold honey. Come to find out, honey was actually uh, the best food that they had to offer us. And so, like, they had this big uh, plastic keg of honey with other bits of uh, flotsam floating in it as well. (laughs) And, like, they would scoop that out. Put it on a plate, gave us a plate and a spoon, and then that was that was what we ate. That's what they <laughs> gave us. <laughs> and like there's a verse in Proverbs actually that talks about eating honey and I was gonna look it up to see what it says, but basically the idea is don't eat so much honey. Don't eat too much honey because if you do you might um, need to vomit afterward or something like that. <laughs> anyway. So <laughs> I can attest to the to the truth of that. Try eating a plate of honey sometime. Just just with a spoon, straight, nothing else. But anyway, you would. I, okay, so obviously, those of us gringos who were there, we ate it because that's what you do. You do not say, "No, I do not want to eat a plate of honey." <laughs> that would be very offensive. It was, it was a, an experience that I will probably remember the rest of my life because it was so <laughs> it was so different from what I'm used to. But you know, you want you respect the people and you respect what this is what they have to offer and we take it and are grateful.
1: The way food and food events are viewed here in Peru are, are there's a lot of respect being given and being being received when when there's a food transaction going on when there's a, a meal being shared. And I think in the states particularly the more in the more industrious regions food is fuel and you sit down and you eat it in As little amount of time as possible and you get back to work but here if you eat very quickly it can be an offense because you're indicating that you want to leave Mm -hmm. and if you do not finish the whole dish that can be an offense because it's saying that you don't appreciate what they're giving Mm -hmm. and often the people in our area are living hand-to-mouth they don't have a lot to share and so if you only eat part of what they give you you're disregarding a huge gift your story about honey sounds very unpleasant andrew but one of the succulent dishes that they serve here to people that they want to show special recognition to is intestine soup (laughs) they do not have refrigeration here and so they kill a cow and uh, the intestines are hung up on a hook over top of the butchers out in town in the open market and the flies are are uh, getting their meal before you buy the stuff that you want for making the intestine soup for your esteemed guests and by the time it gets into the pot it definitely smells like intestines and even by the time it is cooked, it still smells and tastes like intestines. <laughs> oh. But you've got to eat it because that's the way you show that's the way you show love and appreciation here.
0: Yeah, I heard a I heard a, a similar story. One of my teachers, I think it was maybe my eighth grade teacher or my ninth grade teacher. They spent, I think it might have been a summer over in Bangladesh, and so they were telling me different stories about. Their, their experience there and they told me that they were invited to this meal by a native Bangladeshi family and it was soup it was chicken soup they're like okay well, let's eat this chicken soup so they started dipping out chicken soup and, and he was he was dipping dipping his bowl of chicken soup and a beak yeah. attached to a head floated to the top <laughs> wow <laughs> and so he dipped out his soup I think he probably avoided the head and ate it because that's just what you do. Yeah, talking about
2: food it makes me think too well something Sean said, the people there are living hand to mouth and yet you know they're they're giving you part of their living mm-hmm. you're going to their house and eating it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, you don't dare refuse that and sometimes you, you can even feel bad like it's almost it's almost like these people are bringing out the fatted calf maybe it's the fatted chicken. Mm-hmm. Or or whatever it the is, bloated intestines, <laughs> right? <laughs> like you feel bad going to this person's house and eating there. Like you know that this is this is valuable to them, and there there's another difference I think coming out in the culture because of the importance they put on guests and on people. They're bringing out what they have, and they're not they're not holding anything back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and then in return, you you accept that because if you don't, it's an offense to them.
0: Yeah, it's very easy for us to to think that our culture, because we're in it, it's superior to all other cultures. Right. You know, what's, what's wrong with these lying, lazy people in Latin America? But that is extremely arrogant. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe not everything they do is like it should be, but there's quite a bit of things that we do in our culture that is not like it should be, is not Christ-like. I feel like even though... Some of the warm culture stuff might seem very foreign to us, like in the middle of a workday talking with your neighbors, or putting relationships above truth. I think there's probably some things we can learn. I mean, Christ was very much about relationships, and so I feel like that their emphasis on relationships is something we can learn. Mm -hmm. There's more to life than getting in, you know, getting getting in your time, clocking in, clocking out, getting your paycheck going on vacation I feel like relationships are very important it's not something that I do as good uh, as good as I should so I feel like that's something that that I can learn I feel like that we can learn from some of these very foreign cultures I agree with James and when you look at uh, when you look at Jesus how he lived
2: there were times when you when reading through the Gospels you can see the situation that Jesus was in he really wanted to get out and be by himself maybe for various reasons and the people followed him, instead of being uh, resentful about it or telling them to go away, he just took time for them. And I feel like that, like James was saying, we, we can tend to be so focused on, I have X amount of things to get done today. I have this amount of time to do it. And I don't have time to sit and talk to you, or I don't have time to listen to your problem or whatever it might be. And that's a, we miss, we miss a lot.
1: Isn't it true that we have a tendency to think that different is bad and it's hard for us to realize that different can just be different. Sometimes Mm -hmm. there is this tendency for North Americans to come to a foreign country, whether it's Latin America or an African country or, or any other, and, and try to imprint on that culture, the North American values, because north america like james said must be the best but i've seen the reverse be true also where missionaries return from some foreign country and they've picked up some values from that culture and now they want to revolutionize the north american culture (laughs) so that it becomes more latin or more middle eastern or whatever the case might be there there is a truth that god's values trump man's cultures always but there really is a lot of leeway within God's values for cultures to be different and I think different can just be okay
2: well that's right and even Paul even Paul said that to the Jew I become as a Jew to the Greek I become as a Greek and he listed off these different people people groups that in order to reach this group of people, he would change his approach. And sure, that's great. If I go in as an arrogant North American into Guatemala and I'm convinced that my way is best, I won't be able to reach those people or at least not effectively talking about cultural, cultural differences. And I think this maybe plays into the importance of relationships and people, but personal space is not as important. At least I've found Mm -hmm. to folks Mm -hmm. in Latin America as it is to us. Like if, you know the first time you would get on what what we would call a chicken bus in Guatemala you know old old school buses you know they would they'd would stuff people in there and i've been in, i've been on chicken bus where i was standing in the aisle and there was not like you had to actually fight to go one way or the other in between people like or in my uh in my forerunner i had a toyota forerunner for part of the time we were in Guatemala i think i had 15 people in that thing oh, Wow. Time. wow. Had thirty, thirty people in a fifteen-passenger van on a hundred-degree day, and so, you know, I felt fortunate that I was in the driver's seat. <laughs> but, but, you know, to them, it's just it's just another, it's just a way of life. You know, they don't care that much. Whereas, we're we're very much about. I have my personal space, and when you get get into it, uh, I'm uncomfortable, and I'm going to either back off or get you to back off, and. You know that's I'm not saying that that's bad or the either way is bad or good but I see it as a as another difference and I think again it comes from a different focus
1: here in in Peru hygiene is at a different level than in the States and a lot of that again comes to their they're they're living off the land a lot of them don't have running water in our area the majority of houses are still dirt floors and so After a long day of working out in the fields, people smell like they've worked a long day out in the fields. And we have these uh, vans, they're like 12 passenger vans that we call combis that we use for public transportation, just short runs locally. And I remember one of the first weeks that we were here, we were packed into one of these, um, 12 passenger vans and there was getting close to being 30 people in it and they stopped to pick up more people. And I asked out loud in English because that was all I knew at the time, but I was like, where are they going to put more people? And all of a sudden this lady who had been standing in front of me before she had gotten shoved by the people coming on and she just sat down upon my knee. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I was not sure what to do with myself. And so you have all these sweaty bodies sticking around you. And then this stranger sitting on your knee to boot. And it was a lot to take in.
2: <laughs> Another thing that I had to learn was not to throw things. So I'm the kind of person that, you know, I'll throw the keys to my wife or I'll, I might you know, toss a book to somebody or even like, I, I'm pretty sure I, I one time. In Guatemala, I went to throw a, a tortilla to someone, but I found out pretty quickly. You do not, you do not throw things at people. Like, <laughs> if you want to offend somebody, that's a good way to do it. Yeah. And so I had to. That's just a habit. Like for me, I, I wouldn't think twice about it. It's just a, a, a difference again. Something I had to remember. And I remember times where I would do it, and then my
0: wife would be like, "Hey, hey you're not supposed to do that." <laughs> So what was the reason why that was so offensive?
2: I don't I don't know. I'm not I'm not sure. It's not respectful. You don't you don't throw things to people. Mm. You you give it to them. In fact, I teach my children, that. I tell my children, don't throw the thing at me. Come put it in my hand. So <laughs> I suppose maybe when the roles are reversed, I I uh are they that do you see that in
1: Yeah, we we see that here in Peru and I think the two reasons that jump out in my mind are that the things that they have are very precious. Mm -hmm. Also, again, it comes back to this respecting other people and valuing relationship. When you give something to someone, even if it's handing them a pair of scissors, you are doing it in such a way as to elevate this relationship and to toss it to them. You miss an opportunity to show them how much you value them. But if you go walk across the room, and hand it to them and maybe even help them with whatever the thing is that they're doing, that would be the Latin American way.
2: Yeah.
0: I'd like to to switch the conversation a little bit to something different. So both of you have spent some time in foreign countries missionaries, but there's a lot of us that haven't. Why do you think there are and I believe that that the the board or the mission that, that Sean's are working with is trying to find more people to go down and serve with Sean's down in Peru, and from what I hear, they haven't found anybody. And so, why is it so difficult to find missionaries in our churches?
1: I think I have to plead the fifth on this one because I happen to be in an active mission that's searching for families. And so, if I if I speak about why people aren't coming, it could maybe offend them. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andrew, you're gonna have to step up to the plate.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I don't know that I have answers for that
1: necessarily.
2: So, I know of one family who was asked recently to consider moving to the mission field, and they actually gave it long and serious thought and talked to a number of people, but they decided not to go. And I actually felt like they probably made the right decision based on their situation. Mm-hmm. And so, like there are there are people. There are people here in the States, in fact, quite a lot of them, who are being a missionary where they are already. They're building relationships. They may have a business in the community or involved in some type of kingdom work that would actually be detrimental if they would pull out of that, if they would abandon all that and go off to the mission field. So I think there are, it is it is quite legitimate to say no. mm mm-hmm. I am doing God's work where I am, yeah. and I feel like I can be just as effective or more effective. However, however, I'm not sure that not everyone is in that situation, I don't believe. And I actually struggle with that myself because yeah. I, I would, ever since we came back from Guatemala, I have wanted to go back, or maybe not back to Guatemala, but back to the mission field, to a foreign country. And... It has never seemed like the time was right for that. And I wrestle, I wrestle with that some. But anyway, just it, it can be hard to know. Like I said earlier, or like I said at the beginning of the, of the podcast, maybe it's hard for us to know if we are called. Like, for example, do I feel like I need to be called to go to the mission field? Perhaps not. But I do feel like a lot of people do have that, um, that idea that, so they're waiting for the call,
0: uh-huh. maybe,
2: and it never comes.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Or I think it's also true that, that we get pretty comfortable where we're at. When I think about what it would take for me to yank up my family and go to another country, like it would be a lot of work. I actually kind of quail at the thought um, when I actually stop and think, of all the things that I would have to do, and I'm sure Sean can remember um, all the things that they had to do in order to, to pull up roots. And so it's
0: just easier. It's easier to stay where we are, and it's more comfortable, and I think that's a lot of it. It's uh, it's it's very easy to say, well, anybody who doesn't go on the mission field is selfish. That's just what it is. And, and, so, <laughs> um, and so... James, I'm, what are you doing not going on the mission field? <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but, yeah, they're there are legitimate reasons not to go and there there's plenty of kingdom work that is not going to a mission field there are there are many other places there yeah there're more places in the kingdom than just in foreign missions and so i guess the question that we should maybe ask ourselves is are we working in the kingdom where we are do we feel like maybe we could serve the lord better by pulling up roots and moving somewhere else to like Sean said to, to a place that doesn't have as much light as mm-hmm. maybe North America does. I think it's easy to
2: use that as an excuse. Like, you know, I'm supposed to be a missionary where I am and there's lots of needs here in the States and uh-huh. um, I don't have to go to, to a foreign country to be a missionary. And so uh-huh. when we could tell ourselves that and sure, I mean, that's true, but the fact remains that there's a greater need in many countries Many places in the world than there is perhaps in the Shenandoah Valley, uh-huh. uh, where I live and where I work. And so, I don't know. There are there's
1: just not easy answers. Yeah. for that. Don't we see in Scripture that um, Paul was it? Paul talked about that some some plant, some water, and some harvest. And then different times he talked about how he had to go do a thing and either a couple of people or maybe even one person and at times an, an entire church would support him so he could go do that thing and they stayed home and he went and so I think there there is a, a beautiful way that the body can can work together where a person or a family or groups of families can go do can go serve in a different place, whether it's a different place in the States or a different country and other people back home can still contribute in, in various critical important ways. One other question I'd like to ask you all is
0: what is the responsibility of those of us that, that feel like we should support those that are in the mission field, how can we support our friends, our family who do move oftentimes many thousands of miles away? What's the best way that, that we can support you all?
2: Well, I'll, I'll, I'll defer to Sean on this because he's right in the middle of it.
1: <laughs> I think I'm trying to think if, if I can, um, can put things in an order of importance and I'm not sure if I can do that. In, in our In our time, it is pretty easy to stay connected with either, say, email or um, instant messaging, phone calls, various various ways that people can stay connected. And that is a huge encouragement for people who are in, in a foreign setting. Maybe they don't know very many people or know any people where they went and they might be struggling with a new language which makes it even harder to connect with people there james i know you didn't set this up so that so that uh, you would get noticed but james has been one of my most faithful supporters since i've been here in peru just always there we talk pretty much every week even if it's just to say hey look at this thing i'm doing we just stay connected and that that is really big in in our situation we're alone we're just <laughs> there are no other north americans here there are no other local believers so we're very alone and if i didn't have friends like james who were making sure that i'm doing okay and that i know i'm not forgotten i'm not sure i would have made it this long without throwing in the towel and i have another friend who has sent me a voice message every Monday morning without fail since we've been in Peru. Um, the very first Monday that we got to Peru, I had a message from him just saying, Hey, want to let you know that I'm thinking of you and just thought I would let you know what we did here at home and he kept that up and it's now been 83 weeks and he's never missed a single week where he always lets me know what's going on at home good for him that's incredible consistency and he just talks about everyday stuff stuff from the home church and stuff that his family's doing maybe what his what his child is learning how how to crawl or how to talk or what they're doing in the garden like it's not anything grand you might say but it makes a it makes a significant impact in my life to keep me keep me motivated i think if i would have gone into radio silence i am not sure that i would have had the fortitude to to deal with that you you read about that in some missionaries even 50 years ago and i think it takes a very special sort of person to be able to do that and Mm -hmm. i looking inside myself i don't see that I'm capable of doing that, so staying connected, communicating um even if it's something small, I have one friend who does not like to talk; he's extremely introverted, but periodically he just sends pictures. he'll just send five pictures of his family or maybe they're out on a walk or or something's going on at church, and he doesn't have to say anything, and I know his personality, so I don't push him to say anything. But he's just letting me know, hey, I'm thinking of you. We're here. And Mm -hmm. then I would say probably the most important thing is prayer. We are in a spiritual battle here and we face unique battles that we didn't maybe in the States because of our, um, our solitude. And so we need a lot of of prayer support and praying alone and praying quietly is incredible. I uh, commend all the people who are praying for missionaries that way but it goes so much further if you then let your missionary friend know i prayed for you today and maybe even specifically say i prayed mm. for you in this particular way um, i got an email yesterday that said from from uh, a friend from the states and they listed i think three different things that they prayed for us about specifically And that sort of encouragement Really goes a long way for a missionary.
0: So, really, the most important thing is to know that you that you haven't been forgotten, and just knowing that people care, especially with you all being there by yourselves, um, it makes it especially difficult, I would think, than than if you had another family that you could kind of share your your trials and your successes with. You you uh, mm-hmm. really really desire that that support that and knowledge that the people you love back at home still Mm -hmm, still mm -hmm. care and doing everything they can to support you and visits are always appreciated too
2: i remember when people would come visit us it uh, was something that we look forward to for a long time and remember fondly obviously not everyone can do that but if you can it's really valuable
0: yeah andrew andrew wouldn't say it himself but i'll say that uh, just a few months ago, Andrew and, and his family traveled down to Peru to visit Sean's, <laughs> so he was able to to kind of to to pay back in a sense or pay it forward. I don't know what you want to call it. Um, the people that visited him. <laughs> so way to go, Andrew.
2: Well, maybe it was maybe it was all selfish. Maybe it was all selfish because uh, it was great to be back
0: in uh, Latin American country again. So yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I guess you could. Yeah, I mean, if you want to be a selfish person, I guess that's your prerogative. Yeah, we we really enjoyed
2: enjoyed the visit. And uh, I would say that, yeah, maybe we, we I know my wife does better at keeping touch with, with Sean's wife than I do at keeping in touch with Sean. So just because I visited them once doesn't mean I'm doing everything I could be. I'm sure we all could, we could all do better. I wanted to circle back just briefly. Um, James, you had asked earlier about Ugh, why.
1: Don't use the term circle back, <laughs> to <wanted, laughs> All
2: right. I wanted to go back, James, and touch on a question that you had asked earlier about why people don't go uh-huh. to to a foreign country or as a missionary. And I, I think another reason is fear. People people are scared. And um, various. I think there are various fears that we have. One is just fear of the unknown. Like, for me, it was actually uncomfortable. I, I like the familiar and I like the routine and I like to know. I like situations where I'm not out of my comfort zone. Probably most people are that way. When you go to a foreign country, you sort of lose. <laughs> you sort of lose that. Uh-huh. And uh, then there's other things like, so in Guatemala City where we lived some of the time, uh, there's a lot of violence. And uh, a couple of us missionaries were walking down the sidewalk one day and. Car pulled up, guy jumped out and pointed a gun at, at our missionary friend and said, hey, give me your camera. That's it's a bit of an uncomfortable situation to be in. And that's the kind of thing that can drive fear, which in turn people decide, no, it's too risky. I don't want mm-hmm. to do that. I don't want to risk my life. I don't want to risk my family's life. I'll I'll stay where it's safe. I
1: think there is fear of failure, too, of being being a being an effective missionary mm-hmm. so it takes like i said it takes a lot of investment to to come to a foreign country whether it's central america or a country in africa if you get over there and two months into it you realize i can't handle this and you have to go back home that's a lot of i don't know that's a lot of social pressure that you have to deal with when you come back mm-hmm. And so people, if they're not confident that they can make a go of it, it would be better for them. In their minds, it would be better for them just to, to stay home and do what they feel like they know they can do. Yeah, I think that's true.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I mean, and you can't really blame people. I mean, you do hear some of these stories, some of the, some of the different books that are fairly popular about missionary stories or about missionaries that are killed or missionaries that were nearly killed or... It makes dramatic stories to read, but it also, they're scary (laughs) and you can't really blame people for, for
1: being scared and not wanting to go for that reason. James, you asked a little earlier, why are there so few missionaries to foreign countries? And we've kind of bumped up against this idea about what it means to be a missionary or what it means to be a believer Maybe you could talk a little bit from, from your perspective what you think God is, is calling, using that term again, calling you to do or calling Andrew to do or calling me to do, regardless of where we happen to find ourselves geographically.
0: People live with different, different philosophies of life. And mine is, and I think this somewhat comes from my father, it comes from just do the next best thing. There, there are some people that have these life plans, and they know where they're going to be in 50 years. and That's, that's not how I live my life. It's more, what is the next best thing that I can do? What, so I have today, and I have tomorrow. What, are, what can I do today? What can I do tomorrow that can further God's kingdom? Whether it's in the, my job that I'm working, the relationships that I have with my family with my brothers and sisters in the church, or any opportunities that might come up that would maybe take me a little bit out of my comfort zone that would be kingdom work. Talking to my neighbors, that's something that, um, I live in a um, a row of houses. It's kind of a country road, but there's a row of houses, about 10 or 12 houses in a line, and so I have neighbors fairly close on both sides of us, and I have not done very good at reaching out to my neighbors, inviting them over for a meal, and getting to know them, finding opportunities where we can talk about spiritual things. And so I feel like that's that's an area that this year I'm hoping to do more with, is reaching out to my neighbors. I don't know. I haven't had anybody ask me if I'm willing to go on the mission field. If that happens, then I'll have to decide whether that is something that I feel like I should do, or whether... I can conserve the kingdom where I am now, you know i'm I'm kind of the mind that i'll I'll cross that bridge when I get there, so I don't know if that answers your question or not, thinking back to the maybe the
2: misconceptions that people have about being a missionary like what does what does being a missionary mean, or what does a missionary do it's it's pretty it's pretty basic. A missionary is a person who walks with God consistently, relates with other people and takes opportunities to speak the truth uh, whatever they pop up and uh, obviously you know, that can that can look different depending on who you're relating to in their situation and what they're ready to hear but I think all three of those things are for me I, I, I can do all those right here where I am and unfortunately I don't do any of them uh, as well as I could or should I, I would say. What James was saying really resonates with me Doing the next right thing. I think about that often, You know, even at work. Life can be complex sometimes in relationships and situations. But if you don't know what to do, do the next right thing. And what is the next right thing? Often we know what that is. But we know it's always the right thing to obey God mm-hmm. and and work on our relationships and, and when, speak the truth, speak God's truth when we have the chance. Those are all things that we can do probably pretty, pretty much every day, maybe not. Maybe I don't have a chance to witness my neighbor every day, but so anyway, I think it's simple. I think it's pretty simple. That doesn't mean that it's easy. Yeah,
1: I think too that it's, it's basic. What is a missionary? I think it's someone who loves the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and being, and loves his neighbor as himself. Those are the two commands that all of life should hang on Mm -hmm. and we need to be living that out whether we happen to be in Peru or Guatemala or Virginia and it needs to be it needs to be practical in order to be a good missionary you need to be you need to be doing i think about the book of james that talks about faith without works so those those people who who sit at home and think about wanting to do things i don't think are are fulfilling are fulfilling God's call on believers to to share the gospel. But those who do something, and it doesn't matter what that something is, but if they're doing something, then I think they're that much closer to being who Jesus was, who was always going about doing good.
0: We've been talking a bunch about some of the different experiences you all have had, some of the more difficult experiences, and we just finished talking about what is a missionary and what do missionaries do? And I thought it'd be fun to close with with what are some of your best, uh, maybe funniest memories. Being a missionary, from what you all have shared, can be a very discouraging, isolating job sometimes. But what are some ways in which it has been very fulfilling It made you think, you know, I'm so glad that that this is what I'm doing right now. Well, James, you make it sound all doom and gloom. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't mean to make
2: it sound that way. I don't know that I have a funny memory. Um, that nothing comes to mind, but thinking back to, to meaningful memories or good memories, I had a friend named Emilio in Guatemala. We lived in a, we lived in a small village. It was, a, a actually a, a Mayan Indian village, Cacchiquel people. And, uh, so his first language, Emilio's first language was Cakchiquel. Mine was English, but we communicated in Spanish. So, you know, not probably not always perfect communication there. But I spent a lot of hours out in the fields with with Emilio and with others too. But he in particular was one that uh, that I got to be friends with, hauling firewood out, up out of the ravines. We spent a lot of time together, and I remember the last the last Sunday that we were in Guatemala. It was kind of a farewell at the, at the church you know, that Sunday morning. They made us go up front and and uh, you know kind of had a farewell time there. And people came up and talked to us as part of that. And just everyone was sad. But but I think it was the first time I'd ever seen Emilio like in tears, shedding tears. And it, it that friendship, the friendships that I built, and that one in particular was uh, was valuable to me. And and uh, ended up actually being really hard to, to walk away from that. And I haven't kept up with Emilio. I don't know how he's doing spiritually. We did visit him later, uh, a number of years later. I think back to talking about relationships and the importance of that in, in the culture there that's that's one of the most valuable things that I took away from my time there was was the relationships the time with people mm-hmm. and getting to, getting to know them and learning hey these people are just people like me we have the same we have the same problems we have the we're just all human I'm not any better than than Emilio he's not better than me and we were we were peers even though we were very very different um <laughs> personalities, very different background, very different culture, very different perspective, but we were friends and we were brothers.
1: We're still here. And so (laughs) it's a little hard to say what, what my greatest memory is because it feels like we're right in the middle of it. Uh But the most exciting thing in recent, in recent months, I think is that we have a couple who asked to do a Bible study. Um, that's my, my closest friend here, Rafael, and his girlfriend Elisabeth asked to study the Bible with us, and they are both Catholic, and it took a lot of courage for them to do that because they're under a lot of social pressure from their family not to associate with Christians and not to, how would you say, not to be proselytized. So we are currently uh, doing weekly Bible studies with them. And it is very fulfilling to see how their love for reading the Bible is is taking off. And they come to our weekly Bible study and say, this is what I read and I never knew this and I didn't know God wanted this of me and so on. We're, we're there to help them. We're studying the Bible with them, but it's really encouraging to see how the Holy Spirit is working in their hearts the same way he worked in in our hearts. That's probably the most fulfilling thing that I've experienced so far. Mm. There are so many hilarious things that have happened to me over the two years that we've been here. But one that jumps to mind right away was just after we came, we, we came in the coldest month of the year. Where we are in Peru, we're up in the Andes, and it gets really cold here in, in the winter, and I hate cold. Cold and I do not get along very well. <laughs> but we had only been here two weeks, I think. I'd have to look back to be sure, but it was very soon after we got here when our cow, um, milk cow, uh, turned up missing. And so we went at night down through the fields looking for this cow, and our property is surrounded by very deep steep ditches some places during the rainy season the ditches will fill up with water and they're over my head I would say they could be between six and eight feet deep with water this was during the dry season, so there was less water in these ditches but we were looking for the cow and ended up finding her in one of the ditches water up not quite up to her back but she was very stuck in the mud and the water and we were trying to (laughs) uh, trying to get her out. And (laughs) I tried to jump across the ditch so that I could get a rope around her neck, and I misjudged how far the ditch was wide and ended up just falling straight into the ditch with this cow. And the water came up (laughs) almost to my chin, and it was so blitzing cold. I just, I remember shrieking while I was in the water and the uh, the other people that were there with me were were scared that I was drowning because I was just shrieking at how cold it was. I got out of the water and as I was trying to get out of the water, I was pushing off the cow and it scared her and probably my shrieking scared her and she goes, uh, you know, just whooping up out of the ditch. and And so we didn't have, we were only there five minutes and she was out but we had to go walking up to the field in the night, in the cold, I was dripping wet and I just went straight into the house upstairs to the tub and we had no hot water here. So, I, <laughs> so I just went up, <laughs> went upstairs, <laughs> crawled into the tub and covered up with blankets. And then my wife brought up, um, she, he was heating up water on the stove. I think if I remember correctly, cause we had, we didn't have, running water here at the time so she was getting it from some source and then she would bring it up and pour it into the tub around me and I just <laughs> sat there I thought I would never get warm again But oh my yeah I'm glad you survived
2: <laughs> yeah another another some happy memories that I have of Guatemala was, is um, hauling I mentioned a while ago working with Emilio haul, hauling firewood the locals down there the Indian people would use what they called a mecapal just like a strap almost like a burlap or a nylon strap they would put around their forehead and then that would go down over your back and you'd haul loads with it you could they could carry like tremendous loads on their backs which if you think about having that on your forehead or kind of the top of your head all that weights pushing down your neck it's, it's really not that great but anyway that was one thing that I, I remember the first time I went with with one of the brothers at church Went down the ravine. It was probably a 20-minute walk down. And, of course, I was this ignorant gringo who didn't know anything about how to tie the right knots and how to get the thing on my back and all this. And then I (laughs) spent 20 minutes staggering up up the dirt path up out of the ravine with this tiny little, you know, tiny compared to their (laughs) tiny little load of firewood on my back. And... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I thought I was about gonna die by the time I got to the top but uh, I persisted I persisted in doing that. I I almost every Saturday would go out because I usually did that on Saturdays. I would go out and help one of the brothers and eventually got to where I was reasonably capable of hauling the load out. But anyway those were that's those are happy those are happy memories that I have of just being out with the guys and helping them. Being part of their lives, that was, that was fun and fulfilling.
1: Okay, James and Andrew, do you have any recommendations for the people this week?
0: I was preparing for a, for a talk, and somebody recommended a book to me called Foreign to Familiar by Sarah Lanier. Lanier, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. And that was the first time I'd ever really experienced the, the idea of, of warm culture, cold culture. That was, that was very helpful for me in, in preparing my talk, and I liked it so much. Uh, at this point, I think Sean's had just gotten down to Peru, or were just getting ready to go down to Peru. And I liked it so much, I bought him a copy. And so I think Sean has, has read that. I don't know what review he has for it. But, but if you are interested in learning more about this thing of, of warm culture and cold culture, it goes into a lot more detail has a lot of great stories and examples of how people from different cultures can misunderstand each other. So I, I highly recommend that book.
1: Yeah, I would give that a five out of five, too. A great recommendation.
2: Yeah, I would like to, I've, I've seen that one. Um, I would like to read it. I, I think it, James, you mentioned that it talks about differences, but don't, wouldn't you say that she also discusses ways in which people of different cultures can um, help to bridge mm-hmm. bridge the gap
0: yeah it's it's been a couple of years since I've read it but I do think she does give some some ways that you can kind of communicate uh, and understand where each other are coming from that I think could be very could be very helpful for for those that are maybe thinking about going to the mission field or or are relating to to people that have moved to the states from a different country that has that different culture it, it could be quite helpful
1: I think even those that stay in the states you bump up against so many cultures there that it, it there can be your neighbors can do some things that seem really odd but <laughs> reading this book could maybe open up your your understanding as to why they might be doing what they're doing so i would recommend it even if you are planning to stay in in the states forever andrew yeah i don't have really specific uh,
2: recommendations as far as books to read, but I think that reading biographies of missionaries can be can be helpful, can be inspirational, and maybe help us have a, a good picture of, of what missionaries do or should be. Obviously, there's the famous ones like Hudson Taylor or Adoniram Judson or Amy Carmichael or people like that. I should have you know, tried to come up with some specific ones to recommend, but I don't have any right off But I think it's helpful for me. For me, it can be very, uh, I guess, inspirational is the right word. Reading about the people, some of these folks, and their dedication and the lengths to which they went to carry the gospel and to to carry out the Great Commission, you know, it can leave me feeling like, wow, what am I doing? And what could I be doing more?
1: My recommendation this week is a book called Church Planting Movements by David Garrison. And it is a fairly new book. I don't remember off the top of my head when it was published, but it's fairly recent. And he has a lot of statistics in his book of various regions and how in our generation there really is a huge awakening throughout the world of uh, people coming coming to the gospel the the focus of the book the thrust of the book is how the the most effective church movements did their thing or are doing their thing so he looks his research looks at many many decades of information and and sees church movements that grew maybe grew rapidly and then fell off and then others that grew and stayed steady and others that grew and are are continuing to grow and then he looks at their methods what were they doing and how does it compare to uh, what we see in the Bible and what can we learn from it what should we maybe be doing in the cultures we find ourselves in to bring people to the gospel I uh, recommend that book for anyone who's thinking about about taking the gospel to their communities
2: one recommendation I would have for people if if you ever go to a foreign country and maybe we touched on this somewhat earlier but I don't think we said it explicitly that is be be humble and be willing to be the the ignoramus in the situation or to look dumb or whatever like ask questions Admit that you don't know how to navigate a situation or whatever it is, don't pretend don't pretend that you have it all together. I think it's really important when when we go into another culture, especially where there's already a tendency from the people there to perceive say a North American in some kind of to esteem them to esteem me more highly than I should be just because I am a North American. It's. I think it's important to carry, to carry an attitude of humility to exemplify that. Um, I was thinking about one story I had thought about telling that that I didn't was the very first sermon that I ever gave, a full a full fledged sermon that I gave at the at the church where we were getting ready to move to. Actually, I uh, was up front. Of course, I was nervous and everything, and I was still stammering around with my Spanish. And I tried tried to tell the people to turn to the book of Deuteronomy, and uh, of course Sean knows how to say Deuteronomy in Spanish, but it can be a little bit of a tongue twister, <laughs> Deuteronomio. And I tried—I don't know how many times—to say that word, and <laughs> uh, it was funny. It wasn't funny at the time, but like. Probably five times I tried to say it, and I just could not get it out. (laughs) And so I thought it was like, okay, you know which book I'm talking about. Let's turn to chapter X, whatever it was. (laughs) And so being okay with laughing at yourself, Mm -hmm. being the idiot in the situation, Mm -hmm. I think is is valuable. So there's another recommendation.
0: That's a good recommendation. I think that's a good recommendation not just for the mission field but for life. Yeah, That's true. Humility and being willing to – being willing to laugh at yourself, I think we do tend to maybe take ourselves a bit too seriously sometimes, so <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. Well, thank you for, for joining us, uh, Andrew. I really appreciated you taking the time and uh, contributing to the discussion. We certainly, certainly learned quite a bit. Uh, I think it was, it was very educational for me to listen to what you and Sean had to say.
2: Sure. I, uh, I had fun being part of the conversation, and uh, thanks thanks for inviting me. Yep. You're welcome. Talk to you guys later.
1: Yep. Thanks for coming. Okay. That should wrap it up for this time. We want to thank Andrew for joining us. He made the podcast fresh and enjoyable. If you really liked him and want him to come back for future episodes, just send us an email. I can't guarantee he'll come back, but we'd like to hear from you anyway. If you enjoyed the podcast, share it with a friend. We are happy to see people are continuing to listen to us despite our overly serious take on life. Thank you again for your feedback. We are also in need of ideas for discussion topics for the future. If you have an interesting idea, email us at lookingoverlife at gmail.com. Okay, see you later. Ciao.